the calendar says there's a little more than a month left in the year. The season's over for hurricanes in the U.S. Greg Holland of the National Center for Atmospheric Research joins us to talk about what we learned from this year's season and how a new study may help us track hurricanes with more accuracy than ever before. And are you ready to hit the road for the Thanksgiving holiday? Shannon Swanson of AAA will give us the travel forecast for savings and safety. We're just stuffed with the latest weather news here on Jet Streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Hello, weather fans. I'm Kathy Wurzer, host of Minnesota Public Radio's Morning Edition program. Paul Hutner remains on assignment, but I am joined in studio by University of Minnesota meteorologist and climatologist Dr. Mark Seeley and Minnesota Public Radio meteorologist Craig Edwards. Happy Thanksgiving. Yes, indeed. Happy Thanksgiving. Looks like a good show going into Thanksgiving. I think you're right. How are you there, Craig? I'm fine. It's a good day for all of us, uh, unless you happen to be a turkey. Uh, it's not <laughs> then you're running for your life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, guys. Uh, you're right. This is going to be a good show. I'm going to start with some weather headlines. And as you all know, the weather map was pretty quiet overall this week with precipitation on the coasts and high pressure over a good part of the central U.S. as we prepare for yet another Thanksgiving. And we also note another significant weather-related event. The official 2008 Atlantic hurricane season ends this Sunday, November 30th. And what a year it has been. The three major hurricanes of Category 3 or higher, Gustav, Ike, and Paloma, killed 800 in Haiti and caused an estimated $10 billion in damage in Cuba, while also battering the New Orleans levees and hammering Texas offshore oil rigs. During the six-month season, 16 cyclones formed, eight tropical storms, and eight hurricanes, making it the busiest Atlantic season since the record-breaker of 2005, which produced 28 storms. In addition, some researchers believe the Atlantic Basin entered a new cycle of prolific hurricane production in 1995 that could last anywhere from 25 to 40 years. Wow. To get a better handle on hurricane forecasting, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, has launched an intensive study to examine how global warming will influence hurricanes in the next few decades. Joining us right now to talk about this new study is Greg Holland. He's the director of NCAR's Mesoscale and Microscale Meteorology Division. He's also project leader for the new hurricane study. Greg, welcome to Jetstreaming. Thanks, Kathy, and it's great to be here. And thanks for joining us. Say, Greg, what do we learn overall from this year's hurricane season? I think each hurricane season teaches us a few lessons, and in this particular one, uh, firstly, that the the overall high period that we're in is not going away or hasn't gone away this season. Um, uh, Sixteen named storms is about one or two above the average for this period, which I think is an interesting statistic, and we've been running... Uh, with the minimum number of storms for the last uh, 10 or 12 years being about equal to the average of the number of storms in the previous 20 or 30 years. The other thing that uh, it taught us was, for example, with Ike, um, we need to be a little bit more careful about what the warnings and things actually say instead of saying, oh, hey, you know, this is just a a Category 2 storm or or such coming ashore and... um, uh, and, and, and therefore I don't have to worry too much about it. This was a big storm, and a big storm means that the winds and the bad stuff starts to happen a long way ahead of the uh, the actual landfall time, and there were some quite famous um, uh, and quite uh, unnerving, actually, cases of people who got caught out by uh, by not taking notice of that fact. 
Uh, Greg, Mark Seeley, um, I, I wondered among your analyses, uh, do you look at the uh, longevity or continuity of some of these storm systems, and is there a trend there? It seems like, for example, some of the, the uh, long-lived ones like Ike, uh, they hung together, and in fact, their devastation was uh, was quite extensive when you think about it geographically. Is there any trend there? The, the answer is yes. Um, <clears throat> what happened, um, uh, it, it's really a step function. If you go back to, say, 92, 93, 94, it was pretty well the same as 80, 81, 82. And then in 95, we just simply jumped into a new environment, um, and there was a nice paper by uh, Jim Elsner at the University, Florida State University that um, explained that as being also a period when we jumped to a more equatorial, in other words, closer to, to the equator at uh, lower uh, latitudes development. And what we've seen since uh, that period is a lot more of the infamous Cape Verde storms, a lot more storms forming out to the east of the Lesser, Lesser Antilles, and, uh, and, and they are, by definition, long-lived because they've got a lot of time over warm tropical waters before they get into the bad effects of either running into the mainland US or, um, or, or actually getting into the, the vertically wind-sheared and cold ocean waters as you go poleward. The, the other side of it is that um, we're running at... Um, at record uh, numbers of both major hurricanes, but also really record numbers of Category 5s because of that uh, effect. So the longevity is there, uh, and also the, the fact is that we've got a lot more of the uh, of the intense storms as well. Does that frighten you? Oh, it frightens the daylights out of me. I think um, it's... Um, it's indicative of a, of, a, of a problem that's been developing over many, many years uh, with the way that we've, uh, we've handled these things. Uh, since the 1950s, there's been a, an odd 10 times the number of people have actually built houses or commerce or um, uh, structures that, uh, that have uh, infrastructure such as oil systems and things like that in the, uh, in the way of these systems. And we were sort of getting away from it back in the periods where there was uh, only sort of eight or nine named storms on average a year. We're now running at 14, so we've got a lot more. And not only that, if you go back to the 50s, uh, the odds were when one came ashore, it really didn't affect very many people. Nowadays, it's almost impossible to find a stretch of shoreline that doesn't have a whole bunch of people living along it. Craig Edwards? Yes, what I notice is NOAA does a great job of warning for these storms, and they, what they do is they produce a probability forecast of onshore location when the storm is still several hundred miles offshore. And like you indicated, the there's effects of a hurricane well before the, the landfall of the center of the storm. I, I'm still puzzled by the lack of response, and the, ac the accuracy of the forecast is improved considerably, yet the people in Galveston were rather apathetic about this whole thing, and that, that's at least the sound bites I was getting from the news reports. Are you finding that you've got this increased accuracy, increased likelihood of a strong hurricane coming, and you find the response is not what you're looking for to people's safety? Uh, that, that, that's my general impression. I hasten to say that's a little bit outside my immediate uh, expertise, but we've had several famous cases, uh, Katrina being an absolutely glorious one of both inaction by people, but in that case also inaction by, uh, by, by government and emergency services folks um, leading to a major disaster. In the case of Ike, the, the government and emergency services folks were, uh, were absolutely spot on. And as you said, there were good probabilistic forecasts. There was good long-term warning. There was plenty of time to get out. And, and, and I guess it, it probably all gets 
said in, in, in a radio, in a sort of television interview that I um, that I saw where there was a, a few young males, and I guess young males are filled with testosterone uh, in these circumstances, and they were sitting down on the shore, and they said, "Oh, we don't have to go anywhere. This is just a Category Four. It ain't going to cause much." Well, that particular shore was completely washed over, so I don't know what happened to them. But that's uh, that's that's an example of the attitude. How do we educate people differently? I don't know. We have enormous um, communication facilities now. There is the internet, there is the enormous television coverage and everything else. Uh, I think that we do need to actually look at how we can make people understand the threat better in, in, that, uh, in, in these circumstances. Uh, Greg, I wanted to get back uh, to the trend analysis a little bit. I, I assume you, uh, you would NCAR partner with uh, old National Hurricane Center uh, Colorado State, maybe Joint Typhoon Warning Center, uh, certainly Florida State. And uh, I've seen evidence to suggest that outside the North Atlantic Basin, uh, looking at some of the other regions, Western Pacific, Indian Ocean, Southern Pacific, etc., there's uh, maybe a tendency towards lesser activity, or am I wrong in that? No, no, there's definitely a um, leaving, if you take if you take the um, the Atlantic out of the uh, out of the equation and look at the rest of the world, we're in a, a generally low period for the rest of the world, and that's pretty well dominated by the uh, the Northwest Pacific and to some extent by a little bit by the Northeast Pacific. Um, uh, the Northwest Pacific gets on average around 20, 25, 30 named storms a year, so it doesn't have to go into too much of a hiccup to make a heck of a difference to the global statistics. Um, uh, we're quite um, uh, quite amazed by our 28 storms in the North Atlantic. That's that's not all that much more than the average in the Northwest Pacific, and uh, and so that's uh, that's a reality that there is a, a decrease in frequency. But I have to also add that uh, added to that, there is in some areas, in particular, a quite sharp increase in the uh, in the level of really intense cyclones. Uh, the Northern Australian region is. Um, is getting uh, a lot more low latitude developments uh, similar to what we're getting in the Atlantic. They're not getting more storms, but they're getting a lot more low latitude developments, and they've had several Cat 5s, uh, which have, we haven't seen for uh, like 100 years or so in various uh, very low latitude locations. And of course, we have the infamous um, Gonu and, um, and other storms in the, in the North Indian Ocean uh, in both the Bay of Bengal and the uh, Arabian Sea. and. Um, and they uh, broke all records in their uh, in, in in their sort of uh, both their their intensity and also their damage. See, Greg, in terms of the study now that we've been talking about uh, how uh, global warming will influence hurricanes in the next uh, few years, I'm wondering when might that be done? How will this work exactly? Let me tell you a little bit more about it. Uh, what we've uh, been doing over the past. Uh, actually nearly four years now is we we took the uh, the NCAR weather research and forecasting model which is is also used by NOAA and it's used uh, by uh, literally thousands of people around the world um, and that's a well-sorted well-understood uh, weather model and we coupled that into the NCAR uh, community climate system model which is uh, which was the largest single contributor to the uh, to the last IPCC for example and is also a well-known and well-proven model. So we tried to take the advantage of the, uh, a well-proven climate model, which can't really predict weather statistics. It doesn't um, have either the resolution or even the, uh, the inbuilt capacity to come down to very fine scales. And a weather model, which can do all the fine scales, but is not real good at the climate. And we've coupled those together uh, into what we call the nested regional climate model, 
And uh, after a, a few years of testing and, and various other things, we launched off in a major program this year where we're going to, well, we are, we've almost finished uh, running the entire uh, Northern African, or all of Northern African, right over to the East Coast, the North Atlantic and the North Americas out to Hawaii uh, for a period running from uh, 1995 through to 2055 um, at various resolutions. And uh, the highest resolution, this is the distance between the grid points in the model at 12 kilometres, We've got um, three 11-year periods, 95 to 2005, um, 2020 to 2030, and 2045 to 2055. And we are just finishing that. It's taken the NCAR computer, about 25% of it, doing nothing else, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, six months, just to get to where we are at present. Wow. Well, you know what? You're going to have to join us uh, when you start getting a little closer to maybe uh, (laughs) synthesizing and coming close to some conclusions, Greg. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time. No problem. Greg Holland is with the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Well, the turkey is defrosting, the pies are baking, and many folks across the country are heading out to get all that food to Grandma's house on the biggest travel day of the year. Shannon Swanson of AAA of Minnesota and Iowa joins us right now to talk turkey. Well, talk turkey day savings and safety on the road. Shannon, welcome to Jet Streaming. How are you? Good morning. Thank you very much. Well, the first thing that folks want to know about is gas prices. So where are they right now? Well, gas prices right now are good for consumers, that's for sure. Uh, nationally, we're looking at about $1.87 for a gallon of gas, which is about $1.22 less than a year ago. A year ago, we were play- paying uh, over $3 a gallon. Of course, you, the, the cheers you hear in the background are people all around the nation excited about that because it Absolutely. really is a big help. Yeah. Absolutely. And even more significant, it was just four months ago that we were paying our highest recorded price uh, nationally, which is over $4 a gallon. It was $4.11 uh, back in July, which is just four months ago. That was $2.24 more than we're paying right now. Do you think the low prices are going to hold through the new year? Well, it's, it's, it's really tough to say, but certainly with our economic downturn and uh, things, you know, travelers are, are starting to, to cut back certainly on uh, fuel and we're starting to see kind of a downturn. Um, it, it's, it's possible that it could continue to decline, um, but right now oil is trading for about $50 a barrel. Um, and it's possible that it could continue to decline by another 10 or $20 a barrel before leveling off at around 30 to $40 a barrel, uh, which, of course, affects the amount that we're paying at the pump as well. Shannon, we often talk about the Thanksgiving holiday weekend in terms of the bookends, the travel on the Wednesday, the travel on the Sunday. Mm-hmm. But uh, given that uh, over the ages, uh, it's also evolved to be probably one of the busiest shopping seasons uh, yeah. in America. Uh, is there quite a large volume of traffic, for example, on the fr- on the Friday and Saturday as well? And are those sometimes problematic? Uh, 
You know, as far as Friday and Saturday, it's really tough to say. We kind of break it out nationally for the whole Thanksgiving holiday. And right now we're forecasting um, a small decline in the number of Americans traveling during Thanksgiving for the whole weekend. It's about approximately 41 million Americans that are traveling 50 miles or more, um, which is actually about a 1.4% decrease or about 600,000 travelers. Wow. Okay. This is Craig Edwards, and I was wondering, does the AAA have a prepackaged auto safety kit? Uh, the National Weather Service recommends that you have this winter survival kit in your car, or do you just have a, a list of items that AAA recommends that you carry with you when you travel in wintertime type of conditions? You know, we certainly do uh, recommend having some type of winter survival kit in your car that would include, it's certainly not necessarily prepackaged, but some of our travel offices kind of do that on an individual basis, but certainly things like like a warm blanket, um, you know, small chocolates, uh, a lighter, things like that, that you can, you know, keep yourself um, hydrated, anything, you know, lots of water in your car if you do get stranded um, for more than, you know, a few hours, but certainly nice warm blankets to keep you warm. Do we happen to know anything at this point about holiday travel patterns? Do you suppose that folks in our neck of the woods would be on driving on roads uh, more, say, than other people? Um, you know, it, it kind of depends on what region you're in. Um, we've got automobile travelers uh, kind of originating. The greatest number of automobile travelers um, are originating kind of in the southeast. Um, but it, it kind of depends on what area you're coming from because the southeast is expected to produce the largest number of air travelers. Okay. In terms of uh, problems with uh, with driving due to the weather, uh, Shannon, mm-hmm. uh, are there uh, Thanksgiving? Are there any recent Thanksgiving holidays that come to mind where, say, the travel volume was diminished very significantly by the weather? Based on the weather, um, boy, you know, I don't have that information as far as um, how that's how that's impacted travel. Uh, really, typically what we've seen is, you know, families really have a strong desire to be together over the holidays. So, um, you know, certainly weather can delay things. I don't know that it has canceled too many plans. Um, you know, as far as weather history, I don't have that information, but it's really, especially when you're talking about airline travel, um, and prices, of course, do make a difference, but really families have a very strong desire to be together over the holidays, and that seems to be the one thing that does stay consistent very, very every year. So, yeah, so overall your perception is that, that uh, it may alter plans, but it doesn't prevent travel. Exactly, then. exactly. It may alter any, any type of delay as possible, no matter what time of the year it is, whether it's summer or winter. Um, but certainly, you know, living in Minnesota, the Midwest, wherever we are, uh, it, it, you do have to kind of plan accordingly for the weather. You know, leave early, uh, um, you know, take some, take some rest stops if you need to. I and mean, there's lots of things you can do. It's, it's not going to prevent you from seeing your family or being with friends. Um, but certainly plan ahead so that, that you can get to your destination safely and on time. Do you find that most people now have become generally weather savvy or there's still those people that just jump in the car or go to an airport and think, <laughs> what's going on? My trip should be fine. I, I, I still get the feeling that with the Internet and all this weather information out of here that, that people ha- can get their hands on, that there still seems to be these surprises that people didn't there have their antenna up listening for weather conditions. Do you, are you seeing that happen? Well, certainly. 
certainly the frequent air travelers know kind of the routine of, of what to pack, what not to pack, uh, what to have with you. Um, there shouldn't be too many surprises. The media really has done a great job of, of, of talking about what you shouldn't have. But it's certainly the weather. I mean, we live in the Midwest. There's just nothing you can do about, you know, our unpredictable forecasts that we have coming up. Um, yes, we do people, you know, it's, it's very much a fact that, you know, people jump in the car and forget um, how to drive cautiously in the snow. Um, but at the same time, it, it, it doesn't prevent people from getting there. It just may cause somewhat of a delay. Well, Shannon, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. Shannon Swanson is with AAA of Minnesota and Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) Hurry up. (laughs) Someone catch that turkey. (laughs) Poor thing running for its little life. All right, that's... um, that's this week's uh, sign that there is a website of the week to pass along. So, Craig Edwards, why don't you do the honors? Yeah, Kathy, we need to start advising people now that they're starting to get ice on the lakes that it's still not uh, safe yet to, for venturing out there. And uh, the DNR has a great site, uh, inclusive for ice safety tips, and it's dnr.state.mn.us slant safety slant ice. So there you have it. Keep safe on the ice this winter, and we'll all be in a better mood come the spring. There you go. Say, I have two people, friends, who've written us letters. uh, Email, I guess, not exactly a letter. Kathy from Wilmer, Minnesota, has a message here. She says, I love the podcast. Listen every week. Keep up the good work. Here's the question. What is the definition and origin of the word hoarfrost, and why don't we hear it used very often? Oh my word! This goes way back in history. Uh, I believe it's uh, it's uh, British uh, in origin, and uh, re- refers to the um, beautiful appearance. In oh, fact, gorgeous. you know where things are coated with these very small ice crystals and and uh, wonderful, wonderful winter photography. And that goes way back. I don't know the precise year, Kathy, but sometime in the nineteenth century is when that originated. I haven't seen any hoarfrost yet. Uh, no, we haven't. You know, uh, in wintertime when we get, notably, I think when we start to get into fog, into the fog season overnight, and then the colder vegetation will get the ice crystals forming on it. And that starts typically in our region, Western Great Lakes region, in uh, December, does it not, Craig? Yeah, I think so. And uh, I want to tell our listeners that next time we talk, we'll be talking uh, in the meteorological winter. So, oh, you. Uh, that, so uh, we, could, we, could, we could use some snow uh, around true. here in the Midwest that to freshen true. things up a little, little bit. See, you mentioned photography, actually, with hoarfrost. Mark, you're right about that. It makes for beautiful pictures. Uh, another message from Natalie in St. Paul. Uh, Natalie says, I have a friend who wants to send out her holiday cards with a photo of her and her family playing out in the snow or with a nice wintry background. As the volunteer photographer, Natalie says, I was wondering, any chance of snow in the next few weeks? Well, uh, the first part of December <laughs> looks like, uh, Craig, Craig, you're probably going to be better at this than I am. Uh, first part of December, at least across our region, looks cold. We should have the temperatures for it. But I'm not sure we're going to have the dynamics to bring snow. I, I mean, what, what's your take on that? Well, Mark, since I've been watching this weather pattern over the last two weeks, certainly it continues to favor cold. And and I'm not 
too confident in these uh, computer models beyond three or four days, as we saw a snow event this last Friday developed in, in portions of uh, the Dakotas and Minnesota that produced a half an inch to a two inches of snow. So I'd like to think that we can predict snow five days ahead, but I'm thinking uh, three or four days out, we don't have much confidence beyond that uh, to predict uh, any significant snowfall. Right now, I don't see anything showing up of significance in the next week. Hmm. So I wonder if they have to go ahead and uh, go to the store and get fake snow and put it out there on the front lawn. And <laughs> well, they I can don't drive know. Up, they can drive up to Marquette, Michigan, That's where they've true. had nearly 40 inches of lake effect snow in the month of November. That is true. By the way, if you have a question or comment about jet streaming, of course, we have a form you can fill out and send it to us. That's at minnesotapublicradio.org. Say, remember, was it last week we talked to um, our friend from NOAA about uh, space weather? Yes, it was. Bill Murtaugh. Yeah, Yeah. Uh he was great. Well, just I want you all to know, this is from our producer, our our crack producer, Patty Ray Rudolph, that uh, the Thanksgiving Day menu on the Shuttle Endeavor, here it is, hot off the press. I can hardly wait. (laughs) It is a made-to-order holiday menu. includes irradiated smoked turkey, thermostabilized candied yams, thermostabilized, what is that? Rehydratable green beans and mushrooms, fresh cornbread, dressing fresh cornbread cornbread dressing and for dessert a cranberry apple something or other you know it sounds too healthy (laughs) it sounds too healthy to induce the thanksgiving afternoon nap of course you might not want to induce that up in space no i think you want to be sharp and focused at all times especially when you're doing those spacewalks well there you go i wanted to pass that along so hey guys uh happy thanksgiving Happy Thanksgiving to you, too, and to all the listeners out there, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you. We have we have a lot to be thankful for. Despite the economy, we still live in a great country here. There you go. Well, that's it for Jet Streaming this week. For Mark and Craig, Paul, and producers Jim Bickle and P. Ray Rudolph, and, of course, our sound guy, Scooter Hibzinski, I'm Kathy Werzer. Thanks for listening, and remember to keep an ear here to Jet Streaming and your weather eye on the sky. Mm-hmm.